Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's show, it can be a heart-wrenching job, but a pediatric trauma unit is always ready. Over the pager system or the notification system, it'll say either a level one or a level two trauma. Then the appropriate people will assemble. Plus, the long-term effects of bullying. Sometimes people will stay in an abusive relationship feeling that this is the best they can do. This is the kind of treatment they deserve. Of course, they've learned this as children when they were maltreated. And a case of ethics in dealing with long-term care decisions. One wants to be able to anticipate through conversation and understanding whether the person you are choosing or thinking of choosing can bear the burdens of decision. We'll get our checkup from the neck up and a selection from our healing muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we learn all about bullying and its long-term effects, plus how hospital ethics consultants help families navigate tough choices. But first, Pediatric trauma, the most common cause of death and injury for kids. What local services are in place to treat it? Trauma is the most common cause of death and injury in the United States pediatric population. And caring for the injured child requires a special knowledge, precise management, and scrupulous attention to detail. All the clinicians who are responsible for the care of a pediatric trauma patient, including the pediatricians, emergency department clinicians, pediatric emergency department clinicians, and the trauma surgeons, must be familiar with every tenet of modern trauma care. And here to tell us more about all of this is Dr. Kim Wallenstein. She's Assistant Professor of Pediatric Surgery at Upstate Medical University and the new Medical Director for the Pediatric Trauma Unit. Welcome, Dr. Wallenstein. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for inviting me. So I was kind of shocked when I read that statistic. Pediatric trauma is the leading cause of death in children over a year of age. Can you explain that? It's very true that 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 is the case, and that's why it's so important that we have systems in place to take care of these children. As you can imagine, children have a lot of mechanisms by which they can get injured. Uh, We see a lot of children who have fallen from things in the summertime. Uh, We see a lot of children that fall out of windows uh, because of inadequate screens. Uh, We see children who are injured from bike riding accidents, either because they fall off of their bicycles or because they get hit by cars or other vehicles, see children that are involved in motor vehicle accidents. And then in the older population, of course, the older teenagers have also motor vehicle accidents caused by them being the drivers uh, and also the more uh, violent injuries such as knives and guns. Yeah, and I think with somewhat of the increase um, in our uh, inner cities or in our, you know, the increased use of handguns and in some areas, kids being kind of caught in the crosshairs of those kinds of conflicts could also sustain things like gunshot wounds or even playing with guns, which is something that has happened, I know, um, has been 
in the news quite a bit. Exactly. We see those types of uh, incidents where younger children, even younger than the teenage population, will get their hands on guns that are not correctly secured. You know, I saw a statistic that actually shocked me. I read that each year 20,000 children and, and teenagers die as a result of injury. So mm -hmm. that really, they actually die, not just get injured, yes. but actually die. So that... That really, as you said, underscores the need to have the kinds of facility in place. So tell us exactly, when you, when I mentioned that you're the medical director for the Pediatric Trauma Unit, what does that mean? What is the Pediatric Trauma Unit? So at Upstate, we are verified by the American College Surgeons as a level one trauma center for both pediatric and adults. Um, so explain that. Level one concept. So level one, the trauma levels go in uh, three different levels according to the American College of Surgeons and five levels in some states. And the level one indicates that there's the highest level of care for the trauma patient and indicating that the highest level of resources and services are available. Uh, level one and level two centers are very high levels. The level one designation means that there's a little bit extra in terms of resources and also education and outreach. It often means that there are training programs in place and a research program also in place. And so it's the highest designation that a center can have. So of what significance, basically, uh, I want to get into what it means in terms of how it actually translates into an individual case, for example, but what significance does that have to a community of ours, like in the central New York region, to have a level one pediatric trauma unit? It's actually very significant. We are the only level one trauma center in central upstate New York. There are a couple of verified level one pediatric trauma centers down near New York City, uh, but we are the only ones in upstate. And it really becomes more of a resource for, uh, I, for trauma issues and also transporting patients into a trauma center that has the most resources and also providing education and outreach for the community in, or, in order to prevent and to train people. Yeah, I want to talk about prevention and, and all of that going forward. But so what, what are the kinds of injuries that you see? I mean, you've alluded to some, but in your role and in your work as a pediatric surgeon, what are the kinds of injuries that generally will come across those doors? We see such a spectrum of injuries, and I think, uh, again, one thing that's significant in our system is we have all of the specialists in place to take care of any type of injury that comes in here. Uh, in the younger patients, we see, like I said, a lot of falls. Um, we also see um, some non-accidental trauma, as we term it, or child abuse in younger patients. In the in the somewhat older patients, say, in the preteen group, there are uh, significant issues with bike accidents, sports injuries, things like that. The older teenagers can get into uh, driving issues, uh, motor vehicle collisions, uh, penetrating trauma. So we see the, a very wide variety. So give us a feeling for how it unfolds. What happens and who are the members of this trauma unit team? That's a great question. So usually uh, traumas are divided into levels 
within the trauma system. So we actually have what we consider level one and level two traumas, and there are certain criteria in place based on what has happened to the patient and what their vital signs are and different things that go into that. But we usually, we like to get alerted of these patients coming in before they even arrive. Usually uh, if they're at an outside hospital, we will get a call from that facility uh, describing the patient and perhaps even asking for management recommendations before they get here and uh, recommendations in how to transport the patient. And if they come from the scene, sometimes they come directly from the scene in either an ambulance or a helicopter and we get a little bit less notice, uh, but we generally get a good amount of notice to assemble everybody. So then over the pager system or the notification system, it'll say either a level one or a level two trauma, and then the appropriate people will assemble. For level one trauma, it's the maximum resources that assemble in one place. So give us an example of kind of who would show up. Mm -hmm. The pediatric surgery team, uh, the pediatric surgeon in charge is required to be there within 15 minutes of the patient arriving so that they can uh, access assess. And, and act and assess. The emergency department personnel are always there. A lot of times it will depend on what we've heard about the patient in terms of their injuries. If it's a severe head injury, the neurosurgeons are sometimes called ahead of time, and so they are able to be there. Uh, but all of the specialists are required to be there within a short period of time. Mm -hmm. And that's a level one. That's a level one. Level two is a, a little bit downgraded from that in terms of when people need to arrive, but there are still significant resources in place. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm Linda Cohen along with pediatric surgeon and the medical director of the pediatric trauma unit at Upstate Medical University, um, Dr. Kim Wallenstein, and we are talking about trauma injuries in children and what needs to be done. So... Um, it seems to me that those kinds of very dramatic kinds of injuries um, kind of pull all resources toward them. And then, you know, obviously there's a kind of a full court press. Everybody's kind of running around coding or whatever they're doing. That's probably not the right term. But they're doing whatever they have to do. What exactly, well, just help us understand what exactly takes place. So you're all there. And then obviously it's triaged or it's, de it's determined what has to be done first. And then generally what happens if a surgery needs to take place, it's expedited. Exactly. Films there's, need to be done. There's a trauma bay that is in place that the patient comes into. Everybody is waiting for that patient if it's one of the higher levels of trauma to come in. The x-rays, if they need to be done, plain x-rays are done right there in the trauma bay. And really, it's a very regimented system by which you assess the patient from head to foot. Uh, there's the ABCs of trauma that you do first, which is you make sure the airway and the breathing are adequate. If the patient needs to have a breathing tube, then that gets put in immediately. And then the pulses and circulation to make sure the patient is stable from a blood pressure standpoint. And then assessing the patient overall to see what injury are present and what investigation needs to happen. That should take a very short period of time. From there, the patient either goes in a very unstable setting directly to the emergency room, to the uh, operating room, or in a more controlled setting where more investigation needs to be done, they could go to CT scan or some other place from there. But obviously, it, it, surgery, if needed, would be, would be expedited in yes. some fashion. And then following that, they're obviously admitted to the hospital. In your experience, and obviously this is so variable and on a case-by-case -case basis, but can you give us kind of an overview of kind of what 
is a general kind of storyline here? What mm -hmm. happens? It totally depends on how injured the patient is. I'm talking previously about the very injured patients that come in as levels. There are also a lot of patients that come in as trauma consults who are less injured, say a child who falls and hits their head and has a concussion or uh, has a, a broken arm or something like that who's admitted briefly. Those children can be admitted for observation and treatment and then potentially go home in a day or two. The more injured patients are obviously in the hospital until they are stable, and then they either go home or to a rehabilitation center depending on their needs. A lot of children, even if they need rehabilitation services, can have those as an outpatient at-home basis, but we also do have a rehab unit um, at Upstate where a lot of children are able to go as well. That's fascinating. So, you know, I think we've always heard this maxim, children are not small adults. You know, they're not just yes. small adults. What, in your mind, is unique about the approach to pediatric trauma or caring for a child mm -hmm. who's had a traumatic event? And include in that for me, if you, if you wouldn't mind, kind of this notion of uh, often there are family members around. So help us understand what happens. Exactly. So we do have that saying, children are not small adults. And that applies to both the physiologic state and medical state of the children, as well as the social state of children. So and that's why we have uh, pediatric specific specialists in all of the fields at Upstate. So we have the pediatric surgeons, which care for the children, um, and also the other pediatric subspecialists, such as the neurosurgeons, the orthopedic surgeons, uh, ENT surgeons, and all of the other specialists, anesthesiologists, <clears throat> who are specialized in caring for the children who do not have the same physiology as adults. Uh, that's the medical aspect of things. Socially, you're exactly right. They have families that come with them, and so we have a lot of social services involved as well that really always or almost always get involved with the trauma patients because there is that whole aspect of family. So with, within the whole notion of Upstate's Golisano Children's Hospital and the child life specialists that I know have played such an important role in the hospitalization of all children at Upstate, at the Golisano Hospital, um, Children's Hospital, it seems like, they, are they integrated early on in this process in terms of helping families kind of deal with what they're witnessing or dealing with? Exactly. Assuming they're well yeah. themselves. Exactly. We get them involved very early with the children, and they're a, a wonderful resource to have around because they they do a wonderful job with the kids and their families. In the little bit of time we have left, you alluded to child abuse. What happens in your from your standpoint in a circumstance where you, a child comes in with a traumatic injury and you suspect there may be child abuse? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we see a significant amount of that. Uh, there are certain red flags that we and the emergency department look for that would indicate that. And in those settings, we get social work and potentially uh, child protective services involved early. It's always better to involve them and then have them determined that there was not a non-accidental trauma issue than to not involve them and have the child go home and have another incident. So we do involve those people early in the process. So overall, basically what, you're, what you've alluded to is that by having a very highly trained pediatric trauma uh, unit, 
basically the children of our community are in a lot better shape. I would hope so, yes. <laughs> Thank you so very much for coming in. I appreciate it. And it's really very enlightening to hear kind of this whole overview. My guest has been Dr. Kim Wallenstein. She's assistant professor of pediatric surgery, and she is the medical director of the pediatric trauma unit at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. next all about bullying and its long-term consequences. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen along with you. Bullying can happen anywhere, face-to-face, through text messages, or now these days on the web. And it's not limited by age, by gender, or education level. Bullying is a serious problem and it can cause lasting harm. And here with more on all of this and the lasting effects of bullying is Dr. Ellen DeLara. She's, she's associate professor at Syracuse University in the School of Social Work. She's also a family therapist and a national expert on bullying and school violence. She is also the author of her new book, Bullying Scars, The Impact on Adult Life and Relationships. Welcome, Dr. Delara. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me, Linda. Now, you've done a lot of research in this area. I know you had a prior book that you've written about the effects of bullying or the importance of recognizing what bullying is. But I thought we'd start with a quick little overview for our listeners. Can you define for me what you what, what do we mean when we say someone is being bullied? Well, it's a great question because there seems to be a bit of... Uh, conundrum around this in the research community. So most of the time, researchers will say, if someone is being bullied, it has to do with they are being chronically mistreated. There is a power imbalance between the two people. Uh, At the same time, in the number of uh, students that have had the opportunity to interview, which is over 1,200, they do not subscribe to this definition at all. And part of that is because they are oftentimes bullied by their friends. And so they don't feel as though there is a power imbalance. And chronicity is oftentimes not involved at all. It can be a one-time sort of occasion. And so those kids still feel as though they have been bullied. So in your estimation, given all of those, you know, considerations, what is the, what's the germ of it then? What's the key here? The key seems to be a disrespectful interaction and that it's mean-spirited. Intent to cause harm on some level. Intent to make you feel bad. Mm-hmm. That is the germ of it. What do you think the prevalence of bullying is these days, and do you think it's changed? That's an excellent question, too, because the statistics range all over the place from 25% of kids involved with bullying to 80%. Wow. And sometimes the 80% and up range has to do with sexual harassment as a form of bullying, and sometimes that upper range has to do with cyberbullying. Mm-hmm. 
So is in vivo bullying seems to have uh, be on the lower end of the continuum and uh, in vivo meaning person to person. In person. But that's so interesting because I was going to ask you what do you think may have contributed to the increase and what you've actually alluded to is the fact that there are many more methodologies (laughs) through which to bully. Absolutely. So in the past, people were able to go home and in the sanctity of their own family, they could feel a sense of safety. But now that doesn't pertain any longer. Once you're home, you're still on all of the media that you have. And this is not really just limited to kids. I know we're going to focus on kids today a bit and how it affects them as they grow. But the truth is, it it can affect everybody. I mean, bullying can be rampant amongst adults. Senior citizens can be bullied. All of that. This is absolutely true. And we are seeing some of it actually in our national politics at the moment. Yes. So sometimes when I'm teaching my classes, we talk about the full range of bullying uh, in in our culture, in our workplaces, uh, and among all age groups. And we also talk about the fact that bullying is not just between same age um, individuals, but can be parents towards children can be school personnel towards children. So it's a full range. Would you say, and I'm just going to put this in my own words, so I'd like your feedback on it, is it kind of like disrespectful crossing of someone's boundaries in a way? I mean, in a sense, robbing them of whatever that dignity factor is and just kind of basically being extraordinarily disrespectful of that individual as as a person. I like how you put that because that's exactly what the kids that I've interviewed and the adults that I've interviewed have said, is that it's a robbing of dignity. Mm. And kids will say, someone who's being very mean to me, Mm -hmm. and that's how they formulate it. So there are obviously immediate effects of this kind of behavior, especially if there is chronicity to it, meaning Mm -hmm. it's repetitive. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about those first, and then I want to get on to your more recent research to talk about the long-term consequences. So what what are the immediate effects? What would you see in in a... Let's talk about children right now. In a child who has been experiencing being bullied. In, in children, what we see is uh, reluctance to go to particular classes, a reluctance to go to school at all, a reluctance to go on the school bus. Uh, may so withdrawal see, Yes, absolutely. It may see a uh, decline in grades, uh, certainly anxiety, and certainly depression. And, well, first of all, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with researcher and Syracuse University professor Ellen DeLara. We're talking about bullying, her research, and its lasting effects. So you can end up, it seems to me, if if a child has been exposed to a lot of bullying and developed um, an excessive amount of either anxiety slash depression, that could lead to many, many consequences on a longer-term basis. So in your research, what have you found in terms of the harmful consequences? Unfortunately, there are <clears throat> excuse me, many harmful consequences to a person's health and mental health. So what we see is a, a number of people who experience anxiety throughout life, particularly social anxiety. So they may stay back and isolate themselves from going out or being around other people. 
We see people with lifelong depression. Uh, there are real health impacts such as systemic inflammation, GI problems, uh, the nine times risk of uh, heart disease, four times greater risk of diabetes. Really? So mm -hmm. these are terribly profound impacts uh, from being treated uh, inappropriately by others. And how about the issue of relationships with others as time goes on? That becomes problematic. Um, as a result of the experience of being ridiculed by peers or parents or school personnel, people have a great deal of difficulty trusting other people. So that's the number one uh, consequence that so we see. So establishing long-term trusting relationships is really hampered. Hampered even uh, friendships and especially intimate partner relationships. People feel as though they don't probably deserve to have a good relationship. Their sense of self-esteem is so low. And they then will show up on a continuum of either trying their best to please other people, sort of being a chameleon, looking for what the other person wants, becoming an inauthentic person, uh, to over to the other end of the continuum of just trying their best to stay out of a relationship altogether. Sometimes people will stay in an abusive relationship feeling that this is the best they can do, that this is the kind of treatment they deserve. Of course, they've learned this as children when they were maltreated. So it's really, in some sense, almost a particular form of child abuse in a way, because some of what you're describing, I mean, obviously it's not sexual abuse in this case, but the kind of mental abuse, verbal potentially, um, psychic abuse that goes on, almost sounds like a form of child abuse that then ramifies to some of these other behaviors as they go into life and, and their later development. That is absolutely a form of child maltreatment. And some research studies are indicating at this point in time that bullying of children is showing worse long-term effects than uh, other forms of child maltreatment, of physical Neglector. abuse, mm -hmm. those sorts of things, yes. Now, you said something interesting when we first sat down, and you said there were some positive impacts that you found. What possibly could be positive, given what you've just said? Well, you know, when you ask kids if there are, is anything positive from being bullying, they say absolutely not, it's horrible. But by the time someone is an adult, about 40% of the adults that I've interviewed have had the opportunity to think, was there anything that came out of this experience that I had as a child that I could bring to bear in terms of something positive? And some people will say it made me stronger as an individual, uh, it, uh, it's like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> something like that. Um, it affected their moral development. Basically, they made a very firm commitment to never treat anybody else as badly as they were treated as a child. And that some people have made career decisions based on how they were treated as a child so that they move forward in life to try to help others and make all kinds of career decisions that have to do with helping 
Really, that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. So that clearly is an overarching positive, unfortunately, coming out of pain and suffering. That's right. But certainly something very positive. And, and obviously, it depends on the individual. One would think some individuals could go the other way. Oh, definitely. Because you always hear about people who have been abused can become abusers. So that could probably happen as well. Am I right? That does happen. And so that's why I was uh, I was sort of surprised to find the 40% even. I thought that was pretty high. But uh, other people certainly move in the other direction where they become abusers. They become abusers in the workplace. They become the bullies in the workplace. and Or they end up not taking very good care of themselves. So they uh, misuse substances. Uh, they become... Uh, suicidal, those sorts of things. So there are really very profound consequences mm -hmm. to this kind of behavior. So very briefly, I don't want to run out of time, two quick questions. One is, who are the kids who are most likely to be bullied? I mean, is there is there a profile? There is. Um, unfortunately, there is a profile. Children on the autistic spectrum tend so to disabled be, children. Yeah, ways. children who have some sort of disability that they're contending with, they tend to be the victims. Uh, children certainly that are uh, LGBT are targeted. Uh, so anybody basically, Linda, who is demonstrating difference of any kind. Yeah. Those are the kids. Yeah, that's not surprising. A little bit of time. What's your recommendation today for anyone who's a bystander, a loved one, someone who's observing a child being bullied? Not the, obviously not the perpetrator, but a person who's aware of it. How can you help? If they're being bullied, uh, I would suggest that they have the opportunity to talk with a professional person. Sometimes it's a person who is trained as a family systems person who will understand the system of the school in which they are a part. Well, it's all wonderful advice. Thank you so much for your work and for joining us and sharing all of this with us. My guest has been Dr. Ellen DeLar, Associate Professor at Syracuse University in the School of Social Work. She's a family therapist and a national expert on bullying and school violence. And her new book is Bullying Scars, The Impact on Adult Life and Relationships. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's Checkup from the Neck Up, Overuse versus Underuse Injuries, or When Am I Going to Die? <laughs> well, folks, about a year and a half ago, I was running some nasty hard laps around the high school track. A woman in her 80s there who I know had been and still is a serious capital S runner stopped her laps to ask, how fast you doing them? Oh, gasped about X minutes and seconds. How old are you? She said, I fessed up. Then she said wistfully, that's good. And surprisingly, as she took off again, she said, enjoy every minute of it. Okay. Often, over the years, when people have talked with me about running, they've asked how my knees are holding up. And I've trotted out the wonderful research showing it is certainly possible to develop temporary overuse injuries from too much running too soon. But overall, the more one runs, the less chronic joint pain one has. 
the less likely one will become disabled and the longer one likely will live. Yes, isn't that wonderful research? But that day on the track, hearing those words from my fellow runner changed me beyond the research. I knew then and increasingly since then that the great danger in our lives is not from overuse injuries, rather that we begin dying when we underuse ourselves. We human beings thrive physically and emotionally on walking and dancing and swimming and running and biking and gardening and golfing and all sorts of twisting and turning and jumping, moving. Ironically, shortly after that day on the track, I hurt my Achilles tendon. No, not from running, from trying to pick up the end of the dish cabinet. So I had to cut way back on running, boo-hoo, and cut out the hard stuff totally ever since. Until the other day. And boy, nasty hard never felt so good. A joy, a painfully gaspy, doing the best I can joy. So even though our world is engineered otherwise, folks, don't sit down when you can stand. Don't stand when you can walk. Don't walk when you can run, my friends, and enjoy every minute. I'm Dr. Rich, back on track, O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Next up, how hospital ethics consultants help families navigate tough choices. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate's Health Link on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Medical ethics decisions, especially for patients in their last days, can be quite challenging. And here to help us navigate some of these are Dr. Thomas Curran. He's Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and of Bioethics and Humanities at Upstate Medical University, and Robert Olick, an attorney and Associate Professor of Bioethics and Humanities. He's also Chair of the Ethics Committee at Upstate Medical University. Both of my guests serve as ethics consultants for Upstate Medical University. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. Now, you guys were here not too long ago, and we spent some time talking about both how medical ethics consultants work, but also the specifics of a case that came up. And so many things came up in that discussion that I thought we'd have you back to talk a little bit more, first about what your roles are as medical ethics consultants, and then maybe spend a little bit more time on a couple of other cases that you have recently dealt with. So Dr. Curran, let me start with you. As a medical ethics consultant, what exactly do you do? I provide advice to patients and their families uh, when they find themselves in ethically charged situations surrounding uh, their their care here at the hospital. And is it usually around end-of-life situations? Far and away, our most common reason to be consulted is a disagreement disagreement about how to proceed with end-of-life issues. Absolutely. And usually after someone has lost, their dis- the, the patient themselves have lost some decisional capacity or not always? That is 
classically the case because you have you go, the it's it's easy when the patient has capacity. There's no argument. Patients are allowed to make bad decisions, even what you consider to be bad decisions, if they have capacity. It's when they lose capacity, and you have to figure out what do you, what would this patient want in this situation where it gets muddy because families, shockingly, sometimes disagree. <laughs> Shockingly. <laughs> Mr. Olick, you're an attorney, and, and that's your background, but obviously you come to this from a little different perspective, given that background. What, how do you see your role as a medical ethics consultant in the hospital? I don't necessarily see my role any differently than Tom does mm -hmm. um, as an ethics consultant. Um, I have a different background and knowledge base, perhaps, and training than, than Dr. Curran does. Um, but we're really about the same mission, which is to help uh, parties in the case, the patient, family, doctor, nurse, and others, um, identify the source of their disagreements, to educate them about the relevant principles and rules, both ethically and legally, uh, and to help facilitate a resolution of the case. Um, we don't substitute our judgment for theirs. Um, we give advice and recommendations. Um, and, and these are non-binding recommendations. They are non-binding recommendations. Uh, and one of the important points that comes up over and over again in these sorts of cases is the importance of honoring the patient's wishes. And when the patient has lost capacity, as you were describing, um, to find out <clears throat> what the patient's wishes were, look at the important sources of information, whether there's been a healthcare proxy designation, uh, whether the patient has talked to family, friends, religious leaders, and so forth. But there's also been a major shift in our attitudes in terms of the, the whole idea of being patient-centric versus uh, the, what was considered at one time more of a paternal relationship between the doctor and the patient, where the doctor would have basically play God, so to speak, and make decisions for patients. And today, obviously, the emphasis is different, right? So I trained in the mid-'80s, and I was trained as to be paternalistic. And that the generation above me was definitely paternalistic, you know. In in the, in 2016, that is not an, uh, that is not the model any longer. The model really is patient centric, with honoring the patient's autonomy to make decisions, uh, and the, the the physician serves more of a providing options, but the patient decides what they want. But there have to be certain principles that you use when you enter into one of these cases in terms of your approach. In other words, it sounds to me that this fact-finding that has to take place first, and let's, I think it will be helpful if we start with a case and talk about kind of how you approach it and some of these things I think will emerge. Dr. Curran, give us an example of, of a case you've recently seen. Sure. So the, the, uh, we were consulted for, uh, for a 63-year-old female who was admitted with acute respiratory failure uh, due to advanced lung cancer. I might add that's a very unusual way for lung cancer to present with acute um, respiratory failure. And this woman had known that she had had a mass in her lung for 10 months, but had not sought medical attention during that entire time. So her disease was so advanced by the time she showed up at the hospital that she needed to be intubated uh, for respiratory failure. Very, very unusual. And she also, the disease was so advanced that she was no longer a candidate for chemotherapy. And the real tricky part of this case was that her decisional capacity would come and go. She would have good days and bad days. So she'd go from being lucid to not. And when she was lucid, she stated her desire to transition to comfort care. She wanted to get out of the hospital. She wanted to have hospice and, and, and just you know be allowed to die in peace. Her husband, on the other hand, 
wanted to continue uh, aggressive treatment, and he was the healthcare proxy. And so when she, her decisional capacity would wane, he would be the one that they would talk to about dis treatment decisions. We were then consulted because the staff was concerned what appeared to be a disconnect between what the woman would say when she had capacity and what the husband would say when she didn't have capacity. Right, and it would be very difficult to make decisions as to how to move forward oh. under those circumstances. A nightmare. A nightmare. So what happened? What happened? I mean, basically, what was done? What, what was your method in approaching this? What did you need to know? Well, so the, the first of all, we had to find a, a valid health care proxy document which did in fact exist and did in fact name the husband. Um, the second thing was to try and get uh, people in the same room to talk about what, what they wanted uh, and, and try and do that in a time when the patient, the woman, had capacity. And it was interesting because what, when, she, when, she, when the husband was in the room with her, she would, she would defer to what he wanted. And when he was not in the room with her, she would say she didn't want to do this anymore. And so the, it was, the real question was, when, which part, which story was the right one? What were her real wishes? What were her real wishes? If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with bioethicists Dr. Thomas Kern and Robert Olick, and we're talking about the ethics of med certain medical cases. So uh, what, what would you think in that circumstance, Mr. Olick? Well, so starting with the principle that, um, first and foremost, the obligation is to respect the patient's autonomy, um, you're then looking for the autonomy with the patient. So a as a physician, uh, you have an obligation to try to uh, take advantage of opportunities to enhance the patient's autonomy. So a patient with waxing, waning autonomy um, and capacity, um, look for opportunities to facilitate moments of lucidity and assess them uh, when they occur, engage the patient in conversation. Um, but if the patient is um, flip-flopping, so to speak, being inconsistent uh, in their expressions and their preferences and statements of their wishes, um, it can be very challenging to try to sort out where there is true autonomy, because one thing we would want to look for in a patient like this would be consistency. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, as Dr. Curran mentioned, um, is the patient making an autonomous expression and choice when her husband is out of the room? Um, if she's making a different decision when in the room? And so there's almost, there's almost family mediation going on here. I mean, in terms of their relationship, even apart from, I mean, it sounds like she was deferring to him even when she was cogent, right. which might have to do with their history and their in their marriage. And so that becomes very complicated. It does become complicated, but that's not to say that in the exercise of our autonomy, we don't sometimes defer to others, especially those we know extremely well and those we trust. So the mere fact that she would be embracing her husband's views doesn't mean she's not making an autonomous choice, and that makes the situation all the more complicated. It's also important to understand that his role as healthcare proxy um, only has force and effect if she lacks capacity. So as was described, he was maybe trying to make decisions at times when she seemed to lack capacity, but if she has capacity, and is making an autonomous choice, then it's her wishes that control, and he doesn't have authority to override that as the healthcare proxy. So what happened? So I, I just I want to add that when we, when we had the discussion, the fact that she had gone 10 months without seeking medical treatment to, to us suggested that she had, her wishes were kind of 
foreshadowed because most people don't make that decision. Most people get something, a lung mass checked out. And so we, we said, that's what we talked about in the, in, in the family meeting. Uh, the, 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 other, the other part of this case I think is important is that um, this, it illustrates how important it is to have a healthcare proxy who will respect your wishes. In this case, there appeared to be, she appeared to have done a poor job of selecting a healthcare proxy because he appeared to be acting in opposition to her wishes when she had lucidity. And in this case, um, she passed away while we were working through this. Sad. Which is the other, you know, we can say all we want, but the fact is, you don't, you don't get to pick when you're going to go sometimes. And this, and she just died because that's how sick she, how sick she was. The, the, the sad part for me, or the missed opportunity for me, was she didn't have the opportunity to die at her home, surrounded by her family, you know, in, in peace. She died in the hospital when it, it seemed like that's not what she wanted. Uh, but that's how, you know, all, you can only do what you can do. But I guess the takeaway from this, I think what we're trying to get at here is obviously there are all of these sticky situations. And, and it seems to me a lot of what you're doing in your role is also trying to kind of um, mediate family disagreements that may occur when someone is trying to make a surrogate decision for their loved one who may have lost um, decisional capacity of some kind. So what's, what do you think the takeaway here is? I'm, I'm hearing you allude to it but you may have said it already, but this whole idea of think before you pick a healthcare proxy. Right. So we shouldn't be too critical of the choice that was made here. I mean, after all, um, the person most of us would trust, first and foremost, would be be our our spouse. spouse, For sure. Right? And um, one wants to be able to anticipate through conversation uh, and understanding whether the person you... Uh, are choosing or thinking of choosing um, can bear the burdens of decision that Mm -hmm. are being placed on them. And you may not always be correct about that. Hmm. Um, So, uh, you know, we want to take that into account. But advance planning, as was done here, but also advance conversation as part of the planning process, talking to the person you would trust, and and not necessarily just one person, talking to the family, uh, talking to your doctor, if you have an ongoing relationship with your physician, um, to express your wishes and to do that periodically over time. Uh, so in this case, uh, when the patient had a clear diagnosis and she was ignoring treatment recommendations for 10 months, she knew what her condition was. So she wasn't anticipating, trying to anticipate a hypothetical situation. And so that would have been a good time to revisit the conversation uh, with her husband and with her doctor uh, to better anticipate what the future would hold and the decisions to be made. It seems to me there's a big lesson here to be learned. There's a lot of talk about the importance of having quote-unquote advanced directives, meaning some things in writing that you've at least um, put down somewhere what your wishes might be in those, in, just to deal with this kind of a situation. But I think there's something more that I'm hearing and that I hear you're saying, and that has to do with the conversation really needs to be made current in your current situation because pieces of paper can change i know people can write something down and then later in life maybe not having revisited it their 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 attitude changes so what's the bottom line in terms of this basically the conversation let's just sum it up real quick what's the bottom line uh, i think it is the conversation and it's um having and the, choice. The, the foresight and um 
to some extent the courage, you could say, Absolutely. to confront uh, future possibilities your of mortality. the dying process, of your mortality, and to be open about that with the people who care about you the most. Well, thank you both so much for coming in. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And obviously, these are tough issues, but very, very important for people to think about and take action with and obviously have the conversation. My guests have been Dr. Thomas Curran. He's a physician, assistant professor of bioethics and humanities, and Robert Olick, a lawyer and associate professor of bioethics and humanities, both from Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Adolescence can be fraught with cruelty, misunderstanding, sadness. How good it is to remember those who try to help, who see in others the yearning to belong. First, I will read poet Lisa Messerol's poem, Mr. Black and Mr. Schmidt, followed by K.B. Kinzer's poem, For My Brother Who Asked Anne Botance to Dance. Mr. Block and Mr. Schmidt. They moved our class's lockers junior year and no one else's, giving me perch beside Mr. Block's door, an earth science teacher with a silver beard and a jingling pocket of coins, who greeted my days with a winner's fist and a personalized nickname, holding the pose with twinkling eyes until I smiled fortified by natural light for walking the halls betrayed by sisterhood, but true to myself, mostly unseen. A decade later, in another school on another continent, one of my middle school students, his body bent over with the weight of knowledge, entered and exited my classroom three times a day, morning before lunch, afternoon, hello and goodbye each time, always my name, no eye contact, just marching in and out with his French horn, raising his hand, his sing-sawing buoying me in the grieving drifts of lost health. Mr. Block and Mr. Schmidt, I didn't call you this then, but somewhere now someone does. More than another decade later, your voices still come to me like spring rain on broken earth. And the second poem is by K.B. Kinser from Georgia, for my brother who asked Ann Brown to dance, dedicated to Lawrence Bennett and his dates, March 1955, February 2013. Her cooties were legend, even in my grade, always walking alone, hair matted against a snot-crusted nose, Ann's smudged and wrinkled clothes hung on her pale frame like the sail on a skiff in the doldrums. We all feared gym class, boys facing girls in a lineup, plotting strategy, making eye contact, then the mad dash to ask someone before it was too late, before they were stuck with Ann Brown. But girls outnumbered boys, so no boy was ever stuck with Ann Brown. Now in uniform, he leaves his wife and daughter every day to face pushers, murderers, and thieves, to try to save us from ourselves like then, when he wore his cousin's too tight shirt, shoes, and jeans to cross the gym's flat but shining sea.
Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when we learn about the importance of balance in preventing falls, plus how art therapy is helping kids heal, and one volunteer nurse's experience in the third world. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog. That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. Thank you.